Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Gavin Esler. 2024 is the year of elections worldwide in Britain and in countries right through the political and diplomatic alphabet from Algeria and Botswana to Taiwan, Uruguay and Venezuela. But around the world, no election will be more watched than the November 2024 US presidential contest, with, for now at least, the likelihood that former President Donald Trump and current incumbent Joe Biden will square up once more. Everything you can think of, from domestic tranquility or otherwise in the United States, to the world economy and maybe even the future of NATO and the war in Ukraine will be affected by the outcome. So for insight into what lies ahead, I'm delighted to be joined from Washington, D.C. by senior editor at The Dispatch, Sarah Isger. Sarah is a lawyer who worked for the Republican National Committee and also on Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. And despite having been critical of Donald Trump, she also played a significant role in the Trump administration as spokesperson for the Department of Justice. The Justice Department, of course, is where immigration and abortion remain two of the hottest political issues. And Donald Trump, as the world knows, has, to put it politely, some outstanding legal matters connected to the justice system which are likely to play a major part in the 2024 campaign. Welcome to The Bunker, Sarah. Thanks for having me back. Very good to see you again. Uh, Now, I'm looking forward to the campaign, I guess, but some things to dread. First, is it inevitable it's going to be Biden and Trump? I mean, it does look like that right now, doesn't it? I mean, asteroids hit every day, but... (laughs) Yeah, no, it's going to be Biden and Trump barring some external event. And we'll get onto the the meat of the legal challenges to Donald Trump in a second. But I have to say that as someone who loves the United States, I'm speaking for hundreds of millions of us around the world who think, as a country, you can do better. Possibly, I'm just <laughs> just saying just saying that very politely. Um, I think that too. Although you have to remember that we've spent 250 years just trying to make sure that we don't let George III win. And I feel like we've succeeded as far as, you know, exceeding that very low bar. Well, you'll always be welcome back in the Commonwealth. But anyway, we'll move on because let's start with Trump because how daunting are these legal challenges? The one that came up recently was Colorado, Colorado's Supreme Court saying four to three to kick Trump off the Republican primary ballot because he fomented insurrection in violation of the Constitution. Now, how significant is that given that other states have taken a different view? Right. So let's put Trump's legal problems into a few buckets here. That's the first bucket that we'll talk about. There's also the four criminal cases pending against Donald Trump in different states. And then there's the civil cases um, for things like fraud or defamation and stuff like that. Okay, so these are the election cases. And you're right that actually uh, Minnesota has looked at this question. Um, So have North Carolina and Georgia. All three of those courts came out the other way, saying that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment 
does not bar someone from the ballot in those cases. But here comes Colorado, right? Because all it takes is one. <laughs> Literally all 49 other states can be like, oh, I don't think so. But Colorado's like, aha, we see an opportunity to shine. Um, so the Colorado Supreme Court has seven justices. All of them are appointed by uh, Democratic governors at this point. The justices split four to three. So it was a very close call in Colorado. And what the majority said was that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, bar someone from serving as president if they've previously taken the oath of office as president to support the Constitution and then engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against said Constitution, i.e., if you violated your oath, you don't get to retake the oath again. There's lots of problems with this. There's very practical problems. The idea that, what, Donald Trump won't be on the ballot in Colorado or other sort of Democratic-leaning blue states that decide to read the 14th Amendment that way, but then other states can read the 14th Amendment differently and he'll be on the ballot in those states. I mean, practically, that will make it a very, very messy and constitutionally challenging election for the United States that we've never seen before. Legally, there's also problems with this. The 14th Amendment is a post-Civil War amendment that uh, was intended to prevent the same idea, right? You were a member of Congress, then you left to join the Confederacy, and now your team lost and you want to come back to Congress? No. You joined the Confederacy to dissolve the Union. You can't come back to the U.S. Congress. That was the purpose behind the amendment. So we've got a few problems. One, the amendment actually never says president. It says senators, representatives, presidential electors, like members of our electoral college, and other officers of the United States. So we're having a huge debate. Do they intentionally leave out the president? An earlier draft of the amendment actually did have the president specifically listed. That was taken out later, and we don't know why. There's no record of it. At the same time, we have two senators, one of whom says, hey, why isn't the president included? And the other one says, look, we said other officers of the United States. And he goes, oh, okay. And that's the end of it. So there's that type of discussion. There's also the discussion of the Civil War we all knew was a rebellion. Legally, it was defined as a rebellion. Was January 6th an insurrection or rebellion? And did Donald Trump engage in it when he gave that speech on January 6th before people headed to the Capitol? Was that speech protected by our First Amendment? Or was it incitement to violence, which is an exception to the First Amendment? These are all the legal questions. And I say all this because when the Colorado Supreme Court decides something, it then goes directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so that's where we're going to be now. And I think that most people here agree that the U.S. Supreme Court is not going to let this Colorado decision stand, but there's why, there's what the vote will be. It will still be really bad for our country if, for instance, the U.S. Supreme Court breaks on party lines or it's, you know, otherwise seen as politically insufficient or partisan. It will undermine the institution of the U.S. Supreme Court, which would also not be good. And there are, I think, three Trump appointees on that court. So we we, we don't know how, what they will say or, or do, but, you know, people will be suspicious, as you say, that on party lines. I just wondered, we'll move on to something else in a second, but I just wondered the sort of common sense thing is that if you've got someone who is part of a... You, who might I know have been sense. part of an insurrection, like we're not, yeah. oh, it's a close call. If you're saying, I don't accept the democratic mandate that's been given to Joe Biden as president of the United States when you were running against him, and yet ev almost everybody else does who's got you know a pulse, um, then that may not be a 
a definition of stirring up an insurrection, but it does sound as if you're not really democratic. It's insurrection-y, insurrection-ish. <laughs> I'm splitting hairs, okay. but Yeah, um... no, look, uh, yes, you have a great point. But at the end of the day, there's a question about who gets to decide. Is it the American people who get to decide whether he participated in an insurrection? Or is it our court system? Or is it Congress? Because another you know argument on the legal side is that the 14th Amendment had to be sort of put into practice by Congress. Congress created a statute that makes it a crime to insurrect. Is that a verb? It is now. Uh, <laughs> it makes it a crime to engage in an insurrection, punishable by prison, but also if you are convicted of this crime, you cannot, you're disqualified from serving in future office, which looks a whole lot like what this section three of the 14th Amendment was meant to do. But Donald Trump hasn't been charged with that, let alone convicted of it. So is this a Congress thing? Is it a courts thing? Or do we leave it to the American people? Okay, let's move on to the criminal charges, how serious they are, and would any of them disqualify him? Is it possible that someone who's actually either facing a jail sentence or could be in jail could be president of the United States? Yes. Turns out our founders were fine with that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You only need, (laughs) you need to be over 35 years old. You need to be a natural born citizen. Maybe you needed to have not engaged in an insurrection if you'd served previously. We're not sure about that one anymore. Um, But yeah, those are the requirements to be president of the United States. It says nothing about not being convicted of a felony. So uh, he has these four pending criminal cases. Uh, There's widespread agreement that there's really no way that three of them would ever go to trial before November 2024. But... Um, and those, by the way, are the New York State case that's a campaign finance-related case. That case was the weakest the whole time. They haven't even moved forward on it. It looks like it was really a press release for the Democratic Party-elected district attorney in New York who got to have a press release, right, that he was the first person to indict Donald Trump. Woohoo! Hasn't done anything with the case since. Then you have the Georgia election case. That district attorney, also elected, also Democratic Party, uh, indicted you know, 19 people, just super wide ranging. I mean, this is like a blunderbuss uh, indictment there. That's going to take forever. Then you've got the Florida documents case. This is the idea that he took classified documents with him from the White House, not what he's charged with. But then the FBI found out he took them and we're like, hey, can we have them back? And he was like, what documents? I don't have any documents. And also, no, that's what he's charged with. Um, the sort of lying and refusing to give them back. Mm-hmm. That case won't go to trial anytime soon because it's so difficult to uh, declassify documents and figure out what documents he needs access to, et cetera. Okay, so now we get to the fourth case, the one that is most likely to go to trial before November, but I think is still probably under 50%, but I'm in the minority on that. Most legal scholars you'll talk to think that it is going to trial before November. I just want to be honest about that I'm in the in the smaller group on that one, but I, of course, think I'm right. Um, this is the case about Donald Trump's participation in challenging the election results You know, between November 2020 and January 6, 2021. The trial is set for March 4th of 2024. But uh, Donald Trump has pressed the argument that he is immune from prosecution uh, because he was president at the time that he took these actions and that these were official presidential actions and you can't charge him with a crime because he was acting as president. And, you know, we have immunity for judges, prosecutors, and potentially presidents. Uh, A district court, our trial court, Naw dogged that one, as I like to say, like, naw dog, that's not going to fly. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he gets to appeal that. 
And so that uh, is also pending before both an appellate court and now the U.S. Supreme Court. That could delay things itself. Of course, there's jury instructions and picking a jury and all sorts of other motions and things. You know, always vote on the side of delay if you're talking about the U.S. justice system. Um, But that is the most pressing criminal case that has Donald Trump in real jeopardy in the near term. Now, I I realize I'm going into kind of fantasy land here, but in the unlikely event that he is both elected Uh in November 2024, inaugurated in January 2025, and then convicted of any of these offenses in 2025 or whenever the justice system gets his act together, could he pardon himself? Okay, so some problems with your hypothetical. If Donald Trump were to get elected, he not only becomes the head of the executive branch in the United States, but actually the way that our constitution is written, all executive power belongs to the president and he simply delegates that power. So the federal prosecutors only derive their power from the president. Therefore, they cannot try the president for anything. And it gets weirder or worse, depending on your perspective, uh, once certain things in a criminal process have occurred in the United States, double jeopardy starts attaching. And for instance, once the case is dropped, you also can't bring it again. So we also would not be able to be charged after leaving the White House again, for instance. But I did mention those two state cases, New York and Georgia. States are considered separate sovereigns when it comes to bringing criminal prosecutions. However, (laughs) there's a real question of whether there's a separation of powers problem with a state currently trying a sitting U.S. president, right? Because you could see a state abusing that power, using it to distract a president, take up his time, you know, bully him, et cetera. So I think probably that's a no-go too. But let me change your hypothetical. He somehow gets tried and convicted in 2024, then becomes president. Can he pardon himself? Because that's really what you want to know. You want to know if he can pardon himself. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. This is this is amazing, actually, uh, eye opening. But please, please go on to your hypothetical, maybe better than mine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have no idea whether he can pardon himself, and neither does anyone else. Ah. It's just, I mean, I can give you sort of legal theories, but I'll frankly be drawing more from your country about the sovereign than I will from my country's history at that point. Um, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Then may God have mercy on you. That's what I would yeah. say. If you're going yeah, to I'm going back our... to Blackstone. I've got Blackstone on my yeah. shelf right here, by the way. Right. Well, I'm sure a 400-year-old precedent for the president <laughs> might be quite interesting. But um, right. So where does that leave us then? So his best strategy is delay, 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 become president, and then it, most of it goes away. All of it goes away while he's president. I think these state charges could come back after he's president. But I mean, at some point he dies also, right? Like he's not going to live forever. I'm not sure. (laughs) Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. What about the other cases, civil cases, which have been very interesting, quite salacious? Um, where, where are they going? Yeah, so... 
for instance, one of the cases uh, is a defamation case brought by a woman who said that um, he sexually assaulted her. She then says that he defamed her. Um, Rudy Giuliani, by the way, in his defamation case, different. He was defaming election workers. There was a $148 million judgment against him. So, you know, we like our defamation cases in the United States, despite having a robust First Amendment. Um, There's also this fraud case where the trial is trying to prove that he inflated and deflated the value of his properties, depending on whether he was looking for a loan or not to pay taxes. You know, will those have any effect on his political popularity? It certainly doesn't seem so. I think for the most part, a lot of this stuff has been baked in with a lot of voters. I think the way that you change Trump's political standing is by providing new evidence. And there's not a whole lot of new evidence when it comes to Donald Trump being a cad, saying things that aren't literally true. And the voters don't seem to mind that because it's not why they're voting for him. That is very, that is one of the great puzzles. Uh, why don't they seem to mind it? I mean, on the one hand, he's been talking quite a bit about migrants poisoning the blood of the country. Well, you could either say you had four years to fix it and you failed, or you could say, wait a minute, your grandfather came from Germany. Uh, you know, your name, his name was Drumpf. Uh, you could say most of Americans actually have got migrants in their background because they all came from somewhere else at some point, uh, or most did. So uh, why, do, why does none of this work or work for him rather than against him? Because for a lot of voters, it appears that there's just stuff that's more important. Yeah, he says this stuff. Yeah, I don't like it. But look at what Joe Biden's done or look at inflation or, you know, at least Donald Trump's, you know, saying the truth and he doesn't care about the consequences versus all these politicians who are mealy-mouthed and won't actually do anything. They lack courage or they're only doing it because they want money afterwards or they're sucking up to certain people. Donald Trump doesn't need any of that. And look, Donald Trump is not an American phenomenon. This is a worldwide phenomenon in Western democracies. Populism didn't just happen in the United States, and it's not streaming from the United States. I'd argue that after the 2008 financial collapse, you have a lot of realignment um, around the world where regardless of how the political parties were aligned ahead of time in your country, my country, and any of these other countries that have also looked to more populism to be the answer, um, it turned into not the size and scope of government or economic policies so much as the people at the front of the line and the people at the back of the line. And the people at the back of the line after the 2008 financial crisis are pissed. And they're still pissed. And Donald Trump is the result of them being pissed. I think at some point we're going to have to do a podcast on why so many of these leaders have crazy hair. I mean, Trump and <laughs> Millet in Argentina, Berlusconi in Italy, uh, Geert Wilders in the Netherlands. I mean, maybe we maybe the, we haven't got time for that right now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe we need to switch to Joe, Joe hair Biden. Hair products are for the woke liberal effete. <laughs> <laughs> Boris Johnson was another one. Uh, it was yeah. coming to mind. Anyway, um, uh how difficult are the legal problems for Joe Biden? Because without going into the huge details about the Hunter Biden scandals or suppose scandals, uh, his son, do they really touch him except that they both have the same name and the father presumably isn't responsible for the conduct of his son? So the answer to that is right now, no. Hunter Biden has been criminally charged with uh, lying on a form to purchase a gun 
and tax evasion, basically, felony tax evasion. None of that touches Joe Biden in theory. The problem is that where Hunter Biden has gotten his millions and millions of dollars from is not separate from Joe Biden. He got it by, according to the testimony of one of his business partners, the illusion of access to his father while his father was vice president. So obviously that raises all sorts of corruption-ish problems. However, nobody has been able to directly tie money that Hunter received from foreign entities to Joe Biden himself. However, there's conversations that they have saying, for instance, he's going to give 10% to the big guy. That's certainly enough to open an investigation, I think everyone would agree. But you still have to actually find where he did it, because the problem is Hunter Biden was addicted to drugs. You can't really take Hunter Biden's word for it. And so he already said things that, for instance, we know aren't true. He went and tried to get a key for an office building and said, my dad's going to work here. Well, his dad never did work there. His dad wasn't aware of it. Like, there's no evidence of that. So when you've got him being this unreliable narrator, you've really got to actually follow the money. So right now, there's no evidence that Joe Biden did take any money from any of this. It certainly doesn't look good that he was allowing his son, and I use that term loosely, his son's an adult, but allowing his son to profit off of his father. It's not a good look. Right. It's not a good look. And it's not a good look on the other side either. So that gets back to the same old question. It's too late for somebody to emerge now, isn't it? You know, with Iowa caucuses uh, right ahead, then New Hampshire, and then the whole rigmarole, it's going to be very difficult for anyone to set the ball rolling for their own campaign, apart from these two. Certainly for the two major parties, Republicans and Democrats, this looks pretty baked. Nikki Haley is making a last minute surge in the state of New Hampshire, which is going to be the second state to vote on the Republican side. But like, I mean, that's my best argument for that. It's not super compelling. However, there is one potential other option. (laughs) A group called No Labels has spent tens of millions of dollars to get a candidate, an unnamed future to be named candidate on the ballot in a lot of states. We have not had a truly viable third-party candidate, arguably ever, but, you know, Ross Perot in 1992, Mm. um, Teddy Roosevelt (laughs) 100 years ago. I mean, the only third-party candidate to ever win an election in the United States was arguably Abraham Lincoln in 1860. But I don't know. I'll sort of argue with anyone over whether that was a true third-party candidacy. There were four candidates in that election, and he was the plurality winner. Um, So could there be emerging someone who can fill that no-labels third-party candidacy with a real shot at winning? Pretty much no. But, I don't know, (laughs) Oprah, Matthew McConaughey, like... Taylor Swift. Yeah. Oh, Taylor Swift would win in a landslide. So, you know, it is possible. Okay. Is Taylor Swift 35? It's going to be close. Oh, right. She has to be 35 by the time she takes office in January of 2025. I'm sure all the Swifties listening will know the details. We we will wait to see what the American electorate make of all this. Sarah, thank you very much for your insights and for your views which on what will undoubtedly be an extraordinary campaign. It's already an extraordinary campaign. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like this, why not back us on Patreon? For just £3 a month, you'll get access to all of our episodes first, ad-free, and a chance to get exclusive Bunker merch. I'm Gavin Esler. This is The Bunker. Thanks for listening. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. 
week. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker USA was written and presented by Gavin Esler. The producer was Chris Jones and the audio editor was Robin Lieber. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production.